0: Hello everyone and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. We're back after a short hiatus and now we're going to be enthralling you with tales of wonder and mystery from South Africa and around the world. I'm joined of course by my co-host Gabriel Krauser. How is this? So let's get started right away. Um, oh, before I start, sorry, one more thing that we need to talk about. We are now actually on Apple Podcasts, so please go listen to us there. And if you are interested in... Uh, hearing us on another platform please send an email to nicholas at irr.org.za um, and i'll try to get us on that platform we want to know where our listeners are so that would be much appreciated anyway let's go ahead um gabriel why don't you start us off here so there's been a riot in joburg
1: yeah a uh, little context of where we are in the studio we're sort of just west of the central business district it's a friday afternoon and uh, it's been a long week, so we've poured ourselves a whiskey. Yes, to enhance the conversation. To, and process this uh, this madness. Um, to me, uh, just watching these videos... Um, well, let, let's talk very briefly about what exactly happened. Yeah, so the, the,
0: the cops and the Joburg Metro Police, they went into the city of Joburg. They do this every now and again. It's part of Mashaba's sort of clean up the the, CETO, the CBD program. Um, and they were there primarily, they said, to confiscate counterfeit goods that were being sold by the mostly foreign-owned businesses there, although, of course, not only. Mm-hmm. Um, during which, or during this raid, there was a pu- lot of pushback from the people in the area and it turned into a uh, display of civic violence where people were throwing stones at police and Yalas and the cops were basically forced to leave the area in their words, to prevent a bloodbath, as they said. Mm-hmm. It's very nasty scenes, lots of dramatic footage on social media of like a thousand people pelting police trucks, armored trucks with rocks. Um, very dramatic stuff. So anyway, Gabriel, tell us. Yeah, so
1: to me it looks like a dream or a kind of nightmare or fantasy that had once been told about turning into reality just as it had been predicted. Uh, there's a, a swami, a, a sort of religious leader, a uh, man of many races who's traveled many parts of the world, but once upon a time was just a, a desperate teenager. And my mom saved him from a dark situation. And so he's been a friend of the family ever since. And because of all the worlds he moves through, he he he, he has often provided me with insights that, uh, that many sort of bourgeois uh, suburban elites overlook. And one of them is, he said, people... Uh, foreign nationals, Af- black African foreign nationals living in South Africa have really been taking it, taking a beating, literally. Yes, uh, from, for the for, from the cops. From the cops for years. Our also, prof- our very professional and very delicate metro police, they're very famous for that sort mm. of behavior. And he said they've been taking it, they've been taking it, and one day they're going to stop taking it. And and what it'll look like is is hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of people coming out into the street with rocks. And and they will drive the police away, and and that's exactly what I saw. And and what he foretold the next thing to be was a backlash from the cops. And there's some reason to think that that is already on the police mind. The 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 one view is well, that was that was one of the stories behind
0: Maracana, wasn't it? That some cops had been killed by the strikers in the days before, and, and so some of the violence that came out from the cops was from a desire to basically take vengeance. Yeah.
1: And uh, uh, just just give some context. This is all happening on on Jepi Street, um, now known as uh, recently changed to Rahima Musa Street. And Jeppy Street is in a part of the CBD, sort of south of the railway tracks. Um, how would you put it? West of Marbunang, east of the Turbine Hall and and the and the Standard Bank uh, and the FNB Bank City. It's uh, it's a part of the city that's known to locals as Little Addis Ababa or Little Addis uh, because of the high ratio of Ethiopians that live there, and um, and uh, the 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 next oh sorry so so the one image you see is shot from a balcony somewhere up above Jeppi Street or Musa Street uh, it really does look like it, hundreds if not thousands of people. Uh, streaming along and throwing pelting this police vehicle with rocks and and, and driving it away
0: yeah completely caught up in the sort of battle lust
1: yeah and there's this rigorous there don't seem there doesn't seem to be a chant but the, the, the the shouts and the anger and the words that are being said seem to have a cadence to them a kind of dum Doom, thumping cadence and the rocks pelting against and the police desperately getting into the into the Nyalas and then uh, rushing away. And then there's a second uh, bit of footage which is from inside one of the police stations and you see that none of them look injured but they panting and uh, wide-eyed and their pupils are fully dilated and uh, some of the more senior members perhaps are sort of saying, well done, and and then you hear the line, we'll be back. Yeah. We will be back. And the next round is if they come back is a bit of uh, gunshots. And the uh, thing to worry about, at least the thing that this uh, Swami told me to worry about um, years ago was when rocks are replaced with guns and bullets. And to use a bit of stereotyping, one might think that the foreign nationals that come from Malawi and Ethiopia desperately fleeing fairly oppressive regimes with nothing to their names other than their shoes, if they're lucky, still under the soles of their feet, uh, have to resort to rocks. But Yeah, no strong
0: association with violence and the stereotypes about those groups.
1: But we know that there are other foreign national groups that uh, uh, come from countries... Where the violence is not just state-oriented, countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, so-called, and Nigeria, where the state has for so long been so atrophied, and Somalia too, the state itself, its supposed monopoly on on force has been so curtailed for so long that there have been uh, real establishments of fiefdoms. A fiefdom is, we like to think of sort of ESCOM as a fiefdom or, or the, the Gupta Shabin as a fiefdom, but a real fiefdom is backed by yeah. violence that's not in the background, it's in your face. So, and so when, you're, when you're a, you, know, you come from a
0: rural area of Nigeria or maybe even a suburb of Lagos and you move to the CBD, there isn't necessarily that much difference. You're just moving from under the control of one local warlord to one local gang.
1: Yeah. And if, and if, you, and if you have local gangs retaliating against the cops then you begin a cycle of violence that has played out in America in the 30s and Germany for certain in the 30s in, in, in various parts of the world that uh, that doesn't bode well. Um, little context, if I can give it. Yeah, sure. So I live in Yeovil, basically. I live next to Yeovil. I grew up in Yeovil. And uh, Yeovil has long been a safe haven for foreigners. The first time I remember genis- uh, xenophobic attacks at scale was in 2008. There had been attacks before, but there was really this new nationwide sort of yeah, outbreak that was when of... You really saw like lines of people fleeing the townships and that sort of thing. And where did a lot of people come to? They came to Yeovil for the simple reason that the density of foreigners, foreign nationals in Yeovil is already so high that you don't need to barricade yourself really you don't really need to take up arms yeah, you're you not isolated there. you're amongst people and you can be amongst other side. people and no mm-hmm. one's going to take a chance coming against you and so it's totally sort of like an island of calm uh yoval had an interesting incident a month ago that I don't, i'm not sure if i've spoken about on the show uh, you've spoken about it on one of our shows i don't know if it was this one uh but just to give a very brief recap there was a a, a, a man was shot he was Zulu. This matters for the story. His uh, f- immediate family and friends had a kind of ceremony in Yeovil uh, on the streets and in the park to commemorate him, and they shot bullets into the air, uh, some kind of spiritual ritual. The police took uh, umbrage with this. It's against the law to his Fire bullets into the air. There was some kind of exchange. Also, not particularly safe. Not very safe at all. Not a good idea. There was an exchange of words. Please put your guns down. Disarm yourself. We're going to arrest you. There was no. We're not going to do that. And then there was an exchange of fire. In the process of which, the brother of the deceased was himself shot dead. And after that, for a week, Yovel went into lockdown. The streets were barricaded. There were burning tires up and down. And as I've said, Yeovil has been this bizarrely tranquil part of South Africa. There's never been a public protest. Yeah, everyone sort in of Yeovil. associates it with crime and murder and that sort of thing. But in this, in this particular way, it was karma. Yeah, and uh, and that changed. And after six o'clock, if one was driving around, one saw literally no one on the streets. It was uh, it was unearthly. And the worry was that you're going around and either the Zulu mob is going to catch you or the uh, or the police is are going to catch you or ask you tough questions. And uh, on the Friday, sort of heard reports from Orange Farm, which is very far away, saying, oh, have you heard? The Zulus are coming to Yoval? The Zulus are coming to Yoval." And about 100 Zulus came up to Yoval from the heartlands of KZN uh, to have a, another funeral now for the brother who'd been shot dead. And they marched up and down the streets themselves shooting bullets in the air, but this time en masse. And this time the police stood by and watched quietly. Which is, to be fair, more what the South African police are known for. This is what the police are known for. And I must say, as as a resident or neighbor, I was relieved. In this case, yes. In this case, that there wasn't a bloodbath. But it does speak to a de facto surrender of state power because Mm. why? Because the police are um, in a very difficult situation and also because some police are not, are not really fit for the job. And yeah, I, and also I believe it's because our
0: police have such low morale that they're yeah. just not willing to get into... I mean, we all have stories of yeah. sort of the police running away at the first sign of trouble and then ordinary yeah. people having to deal with the mess.
1: Yeah, or private security. But these are areas where there is no private security, where yes. people are their own private security. And so town, little Addis, uh, this is much larger in scale, really. And... Uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it doesn't bode well, and I think it speaks to uh, uh, something that the Institute of Race Relations often has in mind, particularly under France Crnier, who speaks to scenario planning. And he has basically four scenarios that he, yeah, he
0: sees the country one being of which able is, to go to down. One of which is the fragmentation scenario, which looks a lot like these scenes that we're seeing now, where the power of the state evaporates as it runs out of resources, as it runs out of capacity. And in its place... Uh, arise sort of local warlords and sort of managers and gang leaders and that sort of thing who take over and become the de facto state so we essentially turn into a hyper federalized
1: society and you know if you go if you go just the other side of of if you go sort of just a little bit further down Louis Buerta uh, from Yeovil from from town through Yeovil you you're not Shortly afterwards, you have a a massive new development to create a new police kind of barracks. And then just after that, you have Norwood. And the Norwood uh, situation to me is, is, is comic, actually, because you have a golf course upon which we used to have the Million Dollar Challenge. It was one of the premier golfing events. It looked like if South Africa just played its cards right, we might... Uh, elevate ourselves to Mars's status which comes with a lot of tourism and yep, prestige yep. and this kind of stuff and instead we've gone the other way and the lot of the land has been ceded in order to build a new grand uh, kind of uh, gated community with the golf course as a basic sort of green lung park that uh, the members have access to and these apartments are sh- you know you can see from the billboards and from the advertisements are being sold for millions and millions brand new plush Uh, high-quality stuff. And what is the biggest advertisement? We have generators, so you don't have to worry about load shedding. It's its own little fiefdom. Yes. The standard idea that the state provides electricity is not
0: there. So this is the other part of the fragmentation thesis is that the middle class won't just disappear...
1: Uh, it will retreat into enclaves. Mm-hmm. And so Danefern is a future perhaps for more and more Stain people. City. Stain City. City is a future perhaps for more and more people. But people who can't afford...
0: Uh, there was a place that uh, France and I saw in the Eastern Cape, which literally, it was a kind of gated community, except it literally had a moat around it.
1: Yeah. So the moats, and if you go into the Free State, you see a lot of moats too around the farms. So it's medieval. And Monte Cassino, this sort of idea of South Africa being sort of vast agrarian rural place with little… Uh, uh, sort of economically dead
0: wastelands punctuated by these little enclaves of relative prosperity. Walled and in
1: and, and, and autarkic in the sense that they totally take care of themselves. Very
0: interesting, uh, on a slight side note here… A lot of historians believe that the feudal system, as kind of commonly understood, although it's a very contentious term amongst medieval historians, uh, was established precisely in that same way, that the sort of higher-up unitary state of Charlemagne's empire wasn't able to enforce... uh, uh, security on the ground and so people went to local leaders and the whole thing disintegrated into this very localized autonomous collection of, of people.
1: And you see the same thing in China in the start of the 20th century. Exactly, it it yeah. really starts to fall As apart and then you have decades of, of, of feudalism warlords, yeah. and warlords and out of that and the problem with that is that w- w- once you get there uh, if a unifying force is going to come back and, and, and reign the whole thing back in once more It might be not of the sort that you like. And there's also a lot of violence in that process itself
0: because the the sort of, uh, some people are tempted to think of this as actually a kind of liberating thing because it means that you have someone you can deal with locally. Mm. You know, you can free yourself from a lot of the very domestic politics, face to face. You know your little mayor. And And that's, that's, in some ways, it is better. There probably would be a little bit of a. O- economic opportunity in such an environment because, you know, you can't... You won't have the state enforcing B E regulations because you'll be making a deal with your local warlord who, yeah. who just needs maybe a much smaller payoff. But there's usually violence between the different...
1: Across the factions. Across the factions, yes. And so I think we need to speak a bit to the violence because the, the violence in this country has been consistently and repeatedly directed against foreign nationals. And... Uh, at least in, in, in terms of public violence. yes, And there, here the tide has turned the other way. It's, it's foreign nationals going after the police, and so we have to sort of see what we make of that. One thing to note is that the police's pretext for going in there was to confiscate uh, counterfeit goods. Yes, I can personally say from advice. having patronized many of those stores, and I'm very worried about my favorite Ethiopian restaurant, which is up there, which serves raw meat, Uh, which is delicious. (laughs) You have a big plate of raw meat. You're a braver man than I going into the middle of town to eat raw meat in an Ethiopian restaurant. Well, I'll tell you a story. The last time I was there, actually, I took five friends and they were all lily white and they were a bit nervous and we parked the car outside and double locked it and sort of wanted to lay bricks around it and paid security (laughs) guards before we i was like guys just don't worry about it; it's gonna be fine anyway we went in there and we were sort of it's very on the third floor it's densely packed and there's lots of men putting their fingers in the raw meat my girlfriend at the time now fiance got three marriage proposals one of my other friends was there she got five that must have been a bit of an ego boost it was great. The one who got five proposals was... For you. Almost... <laughs> I was offended they were only willing to give me three llamas <laughs> and a four by four. <laughs> but uh, uh, the only incident that we had uh, on that adventure was when we were leaving. We were pulled over by the cops and they tried to extract a bribe from us. Yeah, that sounds like the cops. A lot, of, a lot of money for no good reason. So... I have I have seen the goods that are available there and you can get a Springbok jersey for two hundred and fifty Rand and at the airport and at Santon it costs 600, 700, 850 Rand. And so one wonders, you know, whether this is whether they are infringing upon the trademark. Almost certainly. And you see the Levi's shoes for 150 instead of for two hundred and fifty, or maybe you can bargain it down to a hundred. There is, there is a concern there, and should we take, well, I personally, and I know you personally, we take property rights seriously. you, you Even can't
0: intellectual property rights, which is a much more complicated issue because, you know, how do you define who comes up with an idea? It's not as easy as, you know, who owns a piece of land or something like that. But it's still something we're taking seriously. Um, but the question, the problem I have, the difficulty I have is that when the cops went in to do this, we know what, we know what they're like from our, our experience of it. The Metro cops are often not very, uh, you know, even if they're not being corrupt, which they often are, they usually are quite heavy-handed. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of sort of improper stuff that goes on. So when they list the goods uh, that they've confiscated, they often will, will be very vague about it, which prevents the hawkers from being able to get them back. Uh, it's, it's it's It can be very draconian and it can often be very violent and people are not treated particularly nicely. So I have a lot of sympathy for
1: people then who who react very aggressively. And not that aggressively. I mean they were throwing stones at the vehicle. They were uh, I
0: mean li- you can you can kill people like that. Yeah. So I mean <laughs> they
1: as far as I can tell from the reports, no injured police and there were police who weren't in the vehicles. It seemed yes. really, seemed a little bit like okay, if you get in the vehicle, then we're going to chase the vehicle away. And yeah, you can see in the footage the crowds are sort of they, as
0: the police go back, they fill the space in. Yeah. They don't run up to the Nyalas, even though they perfectly can, and yeah. sort of tip it over.
1: Yeah, and there's certainly no petrol bombs, so this thing doesn't seem to be premeditated. It seems to be a response. Yeah. And why are there so many bricks on the side of the road, by the way, because there's been so much yeah. uh, construction work on the, on the pipes and the stuff, and the and streets also, get ripped up. Also and things,
0: as, as stuff isn't maintained properly, things flake off of the buildings. And then you have lots And of so problems. this
1: is the point that I want to get to. Who maintains town? Now, I have, I have told our listeners before, okay, I've said it now again. I grew up in Yeovil. And one of the things about growing up in Yeovil is that I've, I, and, and going to the market theater and the, and the art galleries in town. Uh, sort of at least once a month for my entire youth was again and again and again coming across this argument of like the CBD was once great, okay, it was racist and terrible, but at least the infrastructure was good and it was working and what should have happened is that it should have just gotten better and populated by all kinds of people and instead it went to hell in a handbasket and uh, and now we need to revive it and talks about reviving town emerged since I was a six, since I can remember, six years old, 1996. And, and many have tried. And many Many have tried, and big business, Blue IQ, government, enterprises, public-private collaborations, and there have been moments of progress, and I must say that the Market Theatre Newtown district has always been pretty good. Mubberning um, is a sort of little fringe thing that's emerged in Although the corner. My came from Arts of Maine. Is now it's collapsing a little bit. You yeah, know, and my experience
0: is, is that it's going a bit backwards. In the sense yeah.
1: that, yeah. But Mubberning is really on the fringe. I'm talking about town-town. Yeah. And in town, attempts have been made, and they've failed. Again and again. I mean, to the point, sort of anecdote. Johannesburg art gallery is kind of in the centre of it all, and it's flooded for three times as the biggest art gallery in Africa. It's crazy. They can't. You can't even protect the sort of very well established architecture sitting with Picasso's and Cezanne's and Manets. What's the state of Ponty right now? Ponty's not too bad. The the it's uh, you know it's it's well secured. the, the, the last time I spoke to a resident of Ponty, there w- there was this kind of Guinness glass thing with Ponty where it was sort of black for the first 80% and the top two, the sort of elite uh, stories, uh, the former penthouses had been converted into smaller things and they were all populated by white. And, now uh, that's some spatial apartheid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was so blatant. Yeah. Um, but what I lived there, and I, I was happy to live there, and and the and the sense of community was great. I mean, no one held anything against anyone. I think once you were inside, going yeah, up yeah. and on the elevators, lots of little kids, people happy to have conversations, and, and, and very family oriented. Um, the the the, the so people. a
0: success story, isn't it? Because it was in a very bad state.
1: Full on success story, and the and the foam of it uh, was was journalists and interior designers, and uh, and and they've all moved out, and they've been replaced by young professionals uh, who 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 go work in. The banks in town it's a good success story but it's an isolated success story the big success story in my opinion and i came i came across this when i was doing research on foreign nationals in 2016 the first kind of work i did for the institute of race relations with ryan malan who was really heading that project to figure out how come the foreigners do better and most people if you ask them, why do the foreigners do better? They say it's because they're selling drugs or it's because they ha- come with uh, mafia connections or they're stealing the stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, they are all these like kind of nefarious suspicions. We've seen them
0: time and time again against many minorities. Yeah, I'd and recommend Thomas Sowell on the middleman minority if you're interested in this kind of topic. <sighs>
1: But uh, what did we find? We found that uh, all of the foreigners that we were speaking to were, were heavily conservative or religious in one way or another, Islamic or Coptic Christian from Ethiopia and Somalia, um, and so didn't drink. They had very low overheads. They'd sleep in their shops. They would they would basically win on the margins. They'd be like, if we're going to extract m- less money out of the business than any of our competitors, okay. if we're going to live more miserable, frugal lives. Then we're going to be able to charge slightly cheaper rates, and then we're going to be able to beat them on 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 the pure business grounds of being able to offer the same product at a better rate to the customer, and the customer's going to like it. And we found this in curtains. We found this in wedding dresses. We found this in uh, uh, the sort of consumable, fast-moving f- consumer goods like you know. It's a very it's a shops. tale
0: if one looks at uh, sort of the history of Jews in America or Indians in South
1: Africa. Um, it's, it's a tale as old as time. And that's really what we found. And we were looking hard and we were going through Soweto, going through the CBD, finding uh, locals who, especially locals who felt uh, like they'd been hard done by. Well, can you tell us a story? Tell us about one that's doing some shady business here or there. We tried to follow those things down every time it turned out to be nonsense and there were very few that even turned out to have something like that. You say, oh, the foreigners are doing this. Oh, tell us an example. I don't have an example. Anyway, I I try to get a bit of a more macro picture because I noticed that there were a lot of buildings that were looking cleaner than I'd seen them before. And that looked, uh, and then as soon as we went inside, we were taken inside. You know, the door handles were there. The light fixtures were in the faucets. You opened it and the water would come out and most important common element, security guards at the, at the entrance. Yeah fingerprint ID or ID books and permanent, uh, you know, hard material to yeah. stop people from getting in. So it kind of looks like a student res building, but it's for grown ups who who want to go to work. And so I tracked down the title I tracked down the, the what do you call it? The the earth numbers of about twenty to thirty properties in the sort of little Addis region. And I found two dozen properties that had been sold for Uh, Between uh, 250,000 rand and 1.5 million rand uh, between, let's say, 1994 and 2004. And that had been resold in the last decade between 2009 and 2019. Actually, it was 2009 to 2016 for between 15 and 115 million rand. Wow, that's a lot of... That's a big uptake, hey? Yeah, yeah. That's real value being created. I mean, if you add if you if you add it up across all of those hundreds of millions, approaching a billion rand. Yeah, that's spectacular. And all of those buildings that I could track down the owners of were buildings that had been built, had been repurchased, sorry, repurposed by foreign nationals. So who tried to reinvigorate town? Uh, local business, local government, and yes, like they just didn't come right. Yeah, you know, the but foreigners who Foreigners, desperate, hard-working foreigners. When and I the enemy. Yes, and you know, it is against the law. Some of the stuff that I saw, people people making curtains and people making wedding dresses, and you ask them what their wages are, and they're below minimum wage. And you ask them, like, well, why are you doing this? And, like, go to Mogadishu and you'll see why I'm doing this. And the people I'm talking about who are, uh, you know, who sleep in their shops or sleep just behind the shop and, and, and barely eat to keep the business growing you ask them why would you ever succumb to this and they say well try out try out a little visit to yeah, the yeah. badlands south of addis
0: in south africa you're probably not going to be kidnapped Go, and you're yeah. probably not going to suffer a famine even if life is a little bit tough sometimes
1: and if the cops do arrest you, there's a big chance that you can bribe your way out of it. Or yeah. if you're going to go to jail, you're going to sit in jail for a little while and then and uh, be deported everywhere. or you're going to or you're going to be able to come back. Whereas if you're in the DRC or Ethiopia or Somalia or parts of Nigeria, if you get arrested, you're going to be tortured. You're going to have your fingernails pulled out. You're going to have your lists of your family's names read out to you. And like if you don't tell on someone else, well, we're going to find them too. Your children might get recruited into a army. We just live in a different kind of country yeah. and 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 a lot of these people are prepared to take every opportunity that they can to get ahead and, uh, and the bulk of it that I've come across and that Rian came across with me really was good, honest business, adding value to South Africans' lives and creating employment and some of that pl- employment actually going to South Africans. So uh, yeah, a little bit of uh, copyright theft, that's for sure. Uh, if you've uh, streamed Game of Thrones uh, without paying for an HBO account recently, then I suppose we can have a conversation uh, <laughs> without any sense of hypocrisy.
0: Or if you've, yeah, or if you've downloaded some video games recently that you didn't perhaps pay full legal tender
1: for. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I I must say, uh, it does seem like a strange
0: prioritization. Yeah,
1: it's it's really.
0: I mean, there's a lot of things that are tearing down the CBD, and I'm not sure if. Uh, the counterfeit Levi's are really the source of the problem.
1: And so and, and this speaks to a bigger issue. I mean, one of the things that our listeners will be familiar with is that we usually do kind of speak about uh, foreign countries. And here we are speaking about foreigners, but in our country. So I suppose this is one way to bring it home. But uh, why is it? You know, there is something very peculiar about South Africa. Because in my view, and I think there is some survey data to back this up, we are in one of the most xenophobic countries in the world. In fact, yeah. I found like a... South African Migration Project survey from about a decade ago that literally, I think they were citing a Pew or or YouGov survey that found South Africa to be the most xenophobic country in the world uh, on the basis of popular opinion. I've seen a survey, I can't remember the exact number, but there
0: was a majority of South Africans believed that we had our unemployment due to too many foreigners taking all the jobs. So...
1: You've got massive xenophobia at a grassroots level. And at the same time, at an elite level, if you're looking at the uh, media pages and if you're looking at what politicians say, it's generally very uh, welcoming or puts down the issue. It's quite polite. Yeah. I mean, uh, Malema said that we should open our borders completely. And we want one currency across the continent and we really love the AU. And in fact, we love other African countries so much that when Omar al-Bashir comes here, we want to protect him from the devilish international criminal court. Actually, I believe that uh, my
0: father, as a chapter of one of Jack Bloom's books, wrote about how, this is during the Mbeki era, Mm. how uh, the Africanist ideology of Mbeki had not penetrated society in any real way. And he was referring, I think that was written around the time of the first big xenophobic attacks. Yeah. Um, and it is true that pan-Africanism has actually, in a meaningful sense, on in a sort of negative sense of being against the West, I think mm-hmm. that it's got some real purchase. Yeah. But in a sense of being with Africa, it yeah. has very little currency. It
1: Outside, I mean, yes, if you go to a cocktail party in Park View or watch the sunset from Westcliff, and you'll find a lot of pan-Africanists. But yeah outside of that, it really hasn't gotten traction. And in a way, I've considered it for a long time to be a sort of relief that the elite are so committed to a view that is anti-xenophobia on the basis of, well, if they're black, then they do count as us. But that was years ago. And now it's... now it's a, now things just are a bit different. Now Pan Africanism, as it's held up by the elite, basically equates to white people don't belong here. Zinzi Mandela sitting in Copenhagen telling us that we're all congenital <laughs> rapists yes. and land thieves yes. and she's far from the only one. There's government policy basically that is him, that's whose who whose genesis who and is the thought that white people don't deserve to own land, that any person who own white person who owns land doesn't deserve to be here. So that's had major negative consequences. And at the same time, in terms of our attitudes to foreign nationals, we haven't done what we need to do, which is to regulate the border, allow legitimate refugees to come in, allow A lot of this is about
0: perceptions, right? It's about if people perceive that they control their country. Mm. It doesn't matter necessarily how many people are coming into the country. What matters is whether people feel like they can go and vote or they can go and complain and that number will change. Because yeah. right now, there is no control over our borders there is a sort of distinct it's it's part of the this entire disintegration of the state that we've been yeah. going on about recently is that the, the police really i mean i've <clears throat> i may have uh, said this on the daily french show earlier today and i'm questioning the wisdom of it i'll say it again i've crossed the border illegally yeah to uh to zimbabwe specifically for the purpose of demonstrating how easy it is to cross the border illegally
1: i'm topping up your whiskey glass for that. thank you sir well done young man Breaking the law and then telling the world about it. Very <laughs> well, good. I mean, you know. He used to be a politician, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. It came with the territory.
0: <laughs> but the important thing is that when, when people feel like they have that loss of control, that's when they start to think that they have to uh, to take mass into their own hands. the Same with that when the police don't seem to be dealing with any kind of with other crimes, mm. people tend to get kind of violent and start burning people alive in the streets and that kind
1: of and thing. And so my sense is that we're living in the worst of both worlds. We've got a kind of, we've got an idea about pan-Africanism that... Uh, is 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 does violence to the Constitution that does violence to so many South African citizens and that's really corroding the economy unemployment numbers up capital flights 450 billion rands worth of private household wealth wiped off the planet uh, last year the rest what's still left is trying to flee overseas and we have uh, uh, this this idea of lackadaisical mismanagement as a result of the same pan-Africanism that makes ordinary South Africans feel totally disempowered and the most frustrated of those. And there's only going to be more frustration because of the economic uh, collapse uh, taking matters into their own hands. And then a police force that rather than address the 10 violent protests that we have every day on average in this country, rather than address the world record levels of bribes. Yeah. Yeah. and then that irritates people, and so then they fight back. And this really does, I feel like I'm feel like i living in history. I, maybe it's a bizarre thing to say, and if, but this is perhaps what it looks like when a country falls apart.
0: If, if I may recommend to our listeners uh, that you go and check out our episode on the Treaty of Versailles and pan-nationalism. Um, I think we spoke specifically about Slavic nationalism, but we went through a little bit about how overseas these kind of grand racial nationalist ideas have really been a bit of a disaster.
1: Yeah. And if I can make another recommendation, Kwame Anthony Appiah is in my opinion the lead philosopher of race and he makes the argument in his book The Lies That Bind that pan-africanism is really the ideology that's keeping race in international politics alive the most. I, uh, yeah, I think I think that that's pretty pretty clearly the case.
0: So, uh check those out. Now, let's move on to something perhaps a little bit lighter than the imminent collapse of our beloved country, uh which is just to that. Uh, which is Jacob Rees-Mogg,
1: mm. as
0: as one of his opponents described him, the honourable member for the 18th century. Yes, well. So for those who don't know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a famous Brexiteer, uh, conservative MP in the United Kingdom, and he has just been chosen by Boris Johnson to be the leader of the House of Commons.
1: Yeah. So what does the leader of the House of Commons do, actually? I think he
0: runs the procedure. I'm not. Super up-to-date on We should get Herman to tell us this because I'm sure he knows. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Herman, just by the way, is our, our very Afrikaans but extremely British uh, newest member of the, internet, uh, of, the of institute. The institute. Of
0: um, he is, I believe, I think he sort of orders the legislative agenda of the House and he, uh, he represents the ruling, the leading party and he sets sort of the standard of Parliamentary procedure, yeah. About you know who, what the, for example, one of the things he's in charge of is the style guide of how. Yeah. So you're this to write. is
1: amazing. So he rewrites the style guide and says uh, that there are he's banning words, ladies and gentlemen. This guy, he's is he not banning words like if you say the word you're going to get shot and imprisoned like we do in South Africa? Like you say a word then you go to jail. But honourable members are not supposed
0: to use these within the house, particularly in writing. Yes, such as I think lot" is one, uh, "a lot
1: of" is. You're one not allowed member. to say "a lot of." You're not allowed to say "got." You're not allowed to say very much. And my favorite is you're not allowed to say hopefully and you're not allowed to say we understand your concerns. Because can you just imagine if politicians weren't allowed to say hopefully <laughs> and we and we understand your concerns? I think that the world really would be a better place. <laughs> we would lose half of all political speeches or answers to questions. Yeah, I mean, if he did it in this country, if, if in this country you banned like categorically, <laughs> And if you
0: banned the word revolutionary in this country, parliamentarians would cut their speeches in half.
1: Yeah. And transformation. Yes. If you had to, like, that that weasel word that can mean so many things, if you had to replace transformation with, like, okay, if if you want to say transformation, I mean, my, uh, a friend of mine was saying, maybe this is a really good idea because although politicians are want and always have been and always will be want to just try and say nothing and fill the space but say it in a likable way, um... Uh, and they'll find ways around it. Okay, if you can't say hopefully, they'll say... Uh, you see, uh, you see it's a hard a, one. It's a difficult one, yeah. And it forces them to think. What are they really going for here?
0: Uh, one of some of the other delightful things that he's added is that uh, in writing, male MPs must, who do not have a title must be referred to with Esquire. Yes. As as, as part of their the descriptions of them in the text.
1: Which is, I mean, it's kind of silly. But it's like it's the thing about it is that the British parliament is so silly. There's something that I think is fantastic about. How dare you say that about the mother of parliaments? <laughs> no, but it is. I mean, just before the show, we were watching some of Jacob Rees-Mogg's antics in the parliament and some of John Burkhart's, the Speaker of Parliament, who kind of protects the uh, the the rules of parliament as it's going. And yeah, you know, we all know what that's like in our parliament. But in there's here, you, know, you might have seen on YouTube, he's famous for saying "otta otta which is supposed to mean order, but he's sort of almost turned into. The <laughs> So British, parrot music it in a thing, way. and he and the and they he and Jacob rees Marg got in a fight about the etymology of the word archaic. And they it really is like something out of another world. And
0: famously, uh, British Parliament has run on a lot of cocaine, apparently. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact that source, of this, but they they tested the uh the bathrooms, and every single surface
1: had cocaine on it. I can totally believe it. It's a bunch of fops who sort of went to Eton or other Ponzi schools. And they and they go there and they sort of try and show off who knows the most about what and Sometimes it's very substantive, but there's a lot of ad hominem. And when it's ad hominem attacks, it's quite clever. And then, of course, it's not all eaten. There's the Scottish element and they come in there and they say, you know, what are you talking about with your understanding of what it is to be a common man? And then there's uh, sort of Yorkshiremen,
0: Labour members from the north of the country, real working class fellows who also bring a completely different vibe to the place.
1: And the Irish from the north of Ireland, it really is, it's, profoundly theatrical.
0: But on top of that, I do think that despite the theatricality, there's actually way more substance than most legislatures in the world. Uh, I can't say for sure, but I can say that at least in the English-speaking world, the British Parliament is one of the healthiest of the legislatures in terms of that you can really ask difficult questions Hmm. and get proper answers in response to them. Mm. Prime Minister's questions is one of the most harrowing, unfair, brutal things I've seen political leaders go through. And it's brilliant. Yeah. Because you stand up there and the opposition can ask you anything and you Mm. just have to be prepared to answer it and not ruin everything for yourself. And it can be really difficult because you don't know what's coming, which means that yeah. you can very easily say something you don't mean or that you
1: will be wrong on something. Yeah. And so and so the, to contrast it, like our, our parliament is super theatrical too. You've got one party that only wears like suits and ties and you've got another party that wears sort of lots of, uh, things on their heads, and then you've got another party that wears red. Uh, either only, when overalls the, only, when
0: they, only when they know the cameras are going to be on them.
1: And when they know the cameras are going to be on them, the EFF come and they sing and they dance and pay back the money, pay back the money, get kicked out. Pay back the money, pay back the money, get no kicked substance. out. There's no substance. It's not very surprising. Everyone knows what's coming. So it's it's theater, but it's theater a little bit like… It's a very boring show. Yeah, it's just—it's yeah, man. It's just so predictable, and and it's really intellectually very. And also, it's often flat, rather than sort of uh,
0: quips about each other's histories and plays on words and all sorts of intricate little inner jokes. A lot of it is just you're stupid and you're fat,
1: basically. Basically. And and one way that you can tell that there's something different going on in the British Parliament is that you'll see the leader of the, uh, you, you'll often see someone standing up and asking whoever's at the dispatch box a really difficult question and sort of doing it in a funny way, humiliating them with a funny little bob and everyone laughs on their side and there's a few jeers from the other side and the other person stands up and if they've got a really good repast if they can turn that joke on its head, as Jacob Rees-Mogg is able to do... Uh, you'll see the first person who made the joke laughing as well. Yes. You'll see him it's, laughing it is at a himself much more at jovial his own atmosphere. expense. Or her own, own expense. I, I, and you do not see that inside of your You African really party. don't. And we don't I, have the same sense of humor. At the land panel conventions that I went to, yeah, I never saw anything like it. Oh, my God. It was so miserable. Miserable, sad, bitter, sour, dry, flat, and often... Not particularly well informed. There are still
0: shenanigans that go on in our parliament. Yeah. Like, for example, um, sometimes when the House is very low no members, uh, the opposition, usually by the opposition I mean only the DA, the other parties don't seem to be adept enough to do this, yeah. will try to s- sink the passing of a bill by preventing there from being quorum. So if they realise that there's f- very few ANC members, they'll all slip out of the House, leave the four members required for a division, and then... Uh, just as the vote comes for comes for a call, they'll call for a division. At which point there's not quorum in the house, so they have to start calling MPs. Now, if they if the MPs aren't in the room in four minutes, they then have to collapse. Parliament they can't pass the bill. They mm. can't vote on this. Mm. So what the what the DA MPs have done on occasion, I believe, is make it so that the lifts have to stop on every floor. Dude, like
1: little kids in that Home
0: Alone movie. So that the ANC MPs in their offices when they hear the bells can't rush down fast enough to Parliament to come and vote on the bill. (laughs) And it's something that parliamentary reporters completely miss. I only know about it because I'm related to MPs. Yeah, uh, but it's it's so there is a little bit of sort of cunning and naughtiness no, that goes on. in our Which It's
1: fantastic. You've got to know the rules of the game, and you've got to play according to the rules of the game. And it's the, and the best that you can possibly do, as you say, is hold a fire. To those in power ask really hard questions surprise them get them to trip over their own words that's a fabulous thing to do because then you get a real insight into what's going on and that theatricality two things about that theatricality that really resigned for me the one is this movie that i'm sure many people will be familiar with uh, about Winston Churchill it's called the Darkest Hour. If you really want a good insights into that, I recommend that you read Boris Johnson's book Churchill: The X Factor. I think it's a it's a it's a it's a lucidly well hist- written history. It's a little bit polemic in some senses, but what what the movie portrays and that I think a lot of people will know is that same stage and the same theatricality and the story that the, the the narrative that the movie portrays and one that I think really has proper historical substance beyond just Johnson's analysis is that theatre saved the world. Winston Churchill's ability to command a stage, to make a good speech, to make a rousing speech, to humiliate his enemies, to lampoon the cowardice, to to denigrate the appeasers and to speak to the... the Primal urgent need that is really in every human heart to live a liberal life, to respect the individual, and to stand up against tyranny. Tyranny, yes. Good Lord. It was theatre that won the British Parliament. It was theatre that made the British Parliament sort of change its won the Labour MPs and enough of the Conservatives over to to, to stand up to the Halifax faction.
0: That's the, Yeah, that's what people forget about Churchill. They sort of look back on the war now, people who know a little bit about history, and they say, oh, well, you know, Britain actually really couldn't lose the war because of X, Y, and Z, and their economy was this and that. But what people forget is that in the moment, you don't have all the information that we in the future have, have available to you. Yeah. And so... Uh, even though the British were in a stronger position than they thought, they were terrified, and there were real attempts to surrender, uh, to, to basically agree with the Nazis and say, look, as long as you leave Britain alone, yeah. you
1: can have Europe. You can have Europe, yours. we'll have us. And the thing is, uh, also... Churchill is, turned that around. And the distinction between the elite, just as we have here, the elite think one thing and the ordinary folks think another thing. A lot of what Churchill was doing was convincing the elite, was changing that sort of... Um, the the worries and the concern the the cautiousness and the appeasement that had that had taken hold amongst uh, the elites of the British political schema and and by persuasion by this magic of of, of just human talk uh uh get them to change their minds and lift their spirits and i think that's a great thing and i think it's okay so jacob reese mogg is certainly you no know, churchill and i don't think that he would uh i think he'd consider <laughs> he himself much more to be he'd consider Churchill to be a bit modern for his yes. liking in terms of inspiration <laughs> he wrote a book about the last book i saw him do an interview he wrote a book about british leaders in the 19th century and here's something that i was going to embarrass you oh yes and it's going to embarrass me and i'm Assuming it's going to embarrass all our listeners. He writes one of the chapter each chapter is about a different great uh, British leader of this of the eighteenth and nineteenth century, including the one who was British Prime Minister when the UK abolished slavery, the first and only great power to do so unilaterally against its own uh, fiscal and and political interests. Who is that Prime Minister's name? You are correct. I am embarrassed. I do not know. If any of our listeners know, feel free to email Nicholas that he <laughs> is a dweeb and that Gabriel is a fool. Uh, and if you and if you don't know, think about that. Think about what that means, that none of us even know the prime minister who is in charge mm. of the country That's when it abolished true. slavery. Who was it, by the way? Do you know? I don't know. I thought you knew. I forgot. <laughs> it's the whiskey. It's Friday. Yeah,
0: and I just watched that video. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I, yeah. uh, may I also recommend? I've, I've, I've. I haven't read it myself yet, but I've had recommended to me Andrew Robertson's uh, biography of Winston Churchill.
1: Um, yes. No. I mean, that's a proper. The the, the the Boris Johnson one. Just to just to give a small qualification, what makes the Boris Johnson one amazing? Is, is the lyricism of the prose. Boris Johnson is this like fan of Greek poetry and Latin understandings of the form of rhyme and cadence. And he's a storyteller. I mean, he started his political life as a journalist who couldn't flip and stick to the facts because he was so interested in kind of moving people's emotions. And in a way, he met his match in Winston Churchill, who he knows to be a greater storyteller. Winston Churchill's first great story is really coming out of the Boer War in South Africa, which yeah, he probably a only got access to because his mother... Don't get any ideas, Gabriel. ...slept with... Uh, had been widowed. Winston Churchill's father had been a great politician himself, although quite a quiet conservative guy. Then when the mother was a widow, she romanced a to general, and then the general was like, well, let's give the chance, let's give the boy the best opportunity he can. And so he did a little bit of fighting... in. In uh, in Somalia, it, well, what Sudan. we were in Sudan, yeah. sorry, and they Khartoum near there, sort of trying to trace down Lord Gordon, who had been the great British hero. The movie was sort of made about him called. Uh, was that the Four Feathers?
0: No, the no, one, no,
1: no. the one where the guy says, where Lawrence Olivier says, it's Lawrence Olivier says, I like the desert because it's clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good line. <laughs> anyway, Churchill was there and he, and, he, and he was shooting bullets as the Mahdists, the sort of early ISIS of the nineteenth, late 19th century yes. were trying to create ISIS in Sudan. And then he came down to the Boer War to be a war correspondent. And there I think he was probably pretty honest, although I think he probably told a bit of porcupines uh, lies. And then... Uh, yeah. Anyway, Boris Johnson sees in Churchill a great storyteller, well, and because he, he sees and himself. I think because he sees himself, but also he d- it it really does bring out the humility in him, which is not something you see a hell of a lot of all of the time out of Johnson. Uh, b- but it's he's at his most humble, kind of trying to ma- trying to match his own sort of three quarters abilities at storytelling to yes. Winston Churchill's two hundred percent storytelling. Yeah, abilities, no, very well it? said. It's a good book.
0: Anyway, so let's move on to the last delightful topic of the day, which is something I'm very eager to talk about. So we'll just go over this briefly because we're already at sort of uh, forty-seven minutes or so. But um, yeah,
1: but this but this doesn't need time. This so just it doesn't needs need time. It just needs, needs intensity. Yes,
0: Marianne Williamson. Oh. she is left-wing America's answer to Trump in a very real sense. Mm. She is. Outside the establishment, she's never been a politician before, except when she unsuccessfully ran as an independent for a California uh, congressional seat. Uh, She is famous as a sort of self-help speaker and spiritual guru of a kind of New Age variety. Uh, She was very influential in Hollywood during the outbreak, the first outbreak in America of HIV-AIDS, where she kind of provided uh, spiritual and psychological comfort to celebrities who were... Tortured by the the fear of AIDS and believing that it might rip rip down their their communities there. Yeah, uh, she's if you look up if you look her up she's been to sort of weddings with every celebrity you can think of in your life places uh, it's weddings where Michael Jackson was the best man and she was the officiator of the ceremony and that kind of thing.
1: Reminds one a little bit of Donald Trump going to Hillary Clinton's wedding. Yes, yes, it's, it's
0: very similar. Um, she's also being supported by conservatives who think she's just really funny.
1: Um, right no so just to be clear the conservatives think she's funny but really they think that she is such a ridiculous idea that she's such a joke that no one would ever get behind her so if they can just push her up the ranks then Donald Trump will beat
0: her for sure yeah have Uh, we heard
1: that argument before? we've heard that argument Mm. before
0: (laughs) she um, she's polling quite low in the polls right now. I think she's kind of around 1%, and she might not qualify for the next debate yet, although there's still time for that to happen. And she's had some pretty good performances because she said things... She had these memorable quotes, like, we're going to defeat Donald Trump with the power of love. No, but say, what is the problem?
1: How did how Trump... Donald Trump, Trump do rose
0: to power on, on, a, on a dark, psychic wave of hate, and we're going to defeat him with love. Oh, man, you can you can put that in a bottle. It's lightning. It is, it is. She She actually is a much better politician than a lot of people give her credit for. I mean, she's made her entire career basically by just talking to people and making them feel good about herself. Who's
1: her favorite? Who's her big champion? Oprah Winfrey. Oprah
0: Winfrey, after the last debate, said, Marianne, wow, that was amazing. Now, People underestimate. So these are not the most politically engaged people in the world, but people who watch Oprah make up a very significant chunk of the
1: electorate of the United States. And they're passionate, and they are influential. Yes, they. You know, one of the things they're Malcolm sort of Gladwin likes to speak about is is the influences. The long before the, you know, the influences nowadays means like some guy who's got twelve people following him on Facebook, like you or me, on, on Instagram. Yeah, but there are influences, as in sort of, you know, that matriarch that that hosts the society event that once a year or twice a year you you get dragged along to because this is just like the important thing to go to and there's lots of important people there and and then that person says this and says that and it's very nice. And then they say something like, well, that Marianne Williamson, isn't she lovely? And then the gentlemen and the ladies in the room sort of take heed and they start wondering whether you should take this kind of person seriously. These are the sort of, this is the kind of fan base that Trump tapped into in a way. The patriarch. The sort of
0: right right wing version of it, yes. Mm. Uh, Now just to be clear, Marianne Williamson is completely insane. Um once again, there is some resemblance. Yes, there's definitely some <laughs> resemblance um she she sort of has talked about in the past that the voice you hear inside yourself is the voice of Jesus, which you know some some religious scholars may dif- differ on. Mm. Um, she's talked about overcoming diseases through meditation and that diseases are more driven by mental. Or mental state, rather she, than physical
1: ailments. No, she doesn't think diseases exist in the first place, and in this regard, <laughs> she thinks that they're a figment of someone else's I was, imagination. I was, you it. And I was you're
0: saying it. I was saying it very uh, positively. Yeah, <laughs> you're being so sweet,
1: man. Let me just <laughs> let me just tell you because Cetlia asked me to to look into something. Uh, black centric forum just quickly to bring it back home mm. uh, they're these guys who tomorrow are going to be having a big uh, shoot up in uh, some uh, shooting range in Joburg in order to get only blacks people they, they say blacks only are invited and white monopoly capital is coming to kill you so you must come learn how to, sh- how to shoot them and how to do the grassroots level revolution so I, I googled them to figure out who they are and on their Twitter page I found that they also think that uh, disease, HIV in particular is a figment of only white people's Imagination that has somehow managed to poison the black souls of these poison yeah. the souls of black people uh, and, and make them sick and all you really need to do is proper black consciousness and then you won't be sick in the first place. So
0: so Marianne's a uh, signature campaign issue which she launched I think with saying that there needed to be I think ten thousand dollars I can't remember the exact amount in reparations to. Uh, black Americans, just a straight-up check. Um, she also, at one of the beginning of her In campaign, which case, I'd like
1: to point out that I'm a black American. Yes. And $10,000 is exactly the amount that I'd like, at least. <laughs> she also uh, started one of her speeches and
0: rallies. Uh, I mean, she doesn't have huge rallies yet, but she one of her speeches with uh, encourage, uh, telling every mem- white member of the audience to find the nearest black person and apologize to them. Immediately. And
1: last year, just to say about her rallies, last year she did do a Love America tour. Yes. Where she toured the entire country and did draw pretty substantial kind of grassroots support. She's also a multiple New York Times bestseller. I think she's written four New York Times bestselling books. Uh, And a lot of them have been featured on the old Oprah Winfrey favorite uh,
0: book yes. club list. So a surprisingly influential person and with some breakout uh, debate performances as being at least very memorable. Mm. Um, <laughs> let's see where this goes. It's very possible that she could sneak through to the next debate in which case who knows where we go from there.
1: Who knows where we go from there. And I, you know, in, in what does it look like? It's like, New York, New York is a big city. It's a lot of different things, but there's a kind of side of New York. It's, it's that New Yorker guy who's like, hey, get out of my way. Full yeah. of elbows. I'm walking teeth. here. I'm walking here. better, better. You know, I, I need to swear to actually do justice to this, but I suppose <laughs> we're allowed to drink whiskey and profess crimes, but not well, swear. Well, we probably
0: could swear, but let's not do it yet because I don't—I haven't worked out how to flag us
1: as explicit. On, okay, on no, no. yeah, I it's complicated. But this is so that knew, Trump was like kind of the New Yorker answer to this Washington establishmentarian kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. by coastal kind elite. of vulgar this vulgar know? brash real estate guy who knows everyone and he does deals, everyone. big deals. I do deals, huge deals. Hugest you deals you've ever seen bigger than the buildings even is the deal and now we have the other side Los Angeles
0: California's on
1: Hollywood chilled beauty love take it easy man just you know get with the vibes and push away the darkness with your mind of the disease and your in your the cancer in your liver just push it away and this is how we're going to push away Trump just by thinking about beautiful halos Descending around our chakras that are rainbow-colored, just like the flag should be, and kill Donald Trump (laughs) (laughs) with love. With love. Kill Donald
0: Trump. (laughs) So uh, my advice to the listeners is if Marianne Williamson gets elected uh, or, or if she makes it through to the next debate, I think you should speak to your financial advisor about buying <laughs> gold.
1: <laughs> Unofficial slogan of two crickets and a thorn tree is probably buy gold. Um, and, oh, I, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any money. First thing to just get some money. Yes. I, I, the other thing I would like
0: to point out is that I think at this stage in the primaries, uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter were roughly... Slightly, maybe zero point five percent percent in the ahead in the polls mm. of where Marianne Williamson is right now. Food for thought. On that note, on the power of love, uh, I think we're going to conclude today. So, if you would, if you like this podcast and you would like to donate to the institute and support our work, you can SMS your name to three two eight two three, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>